host, Anna Danina, and welcome to episode 8 of the Crime Bistro Podcast. This show gazes into the thrillingly twisted world of true crime, examining real cases while we share in a passion for crime and coffee alike. For this episode, I am enjoying a hot matcha latte, so grab yourself a fresh brew and let's get into the bizarre case of the Yuba County Five. On February 24th of 1978, Five young men of ages ranging from 24 to 32 years old were driving back from a basketball game at California State University when they, for reasons unknown, drove up a mountain into the wilderness of the Plumas National Forest and were never seen alive again. This case has famously been referred to as the American Vyatlov Pass incident, and it does share some eerie characteristics with that case. This incident as well remains unsolved, and its overwhelming number of suspicious details and loose ends likely mean we will never get a solid answer, though there are a great number of theories as to what really happened to the men on that night. The group consisted of Bill Sterling, who was 29 at the time, Jack Hewitt, who was 24, Ted Weyer, who was 32, Jack Madruga, who was 30, and Gary Mathias, who was 25. They all became friends through Gateway, a group for those with mild intellectual disabilities, brain injuries, and or mental illnesses. While they all struggled with mental disabilities or mental illnesses, they were all considered high-functioning individuals, and the five all shared in a passion for basketball, and they played together on a team with Gateway, known as the Gateway Gators, and were known to attend games together. They were a very close group and were even lovingly referred to by their parents as the boys. At the time, the group all lived with their parents, and they resided in and around Yuba County, California. Of the group, Gary had the most severe mental health troubles. He was under active drug treatment for schizophrenia and had previously been diagnosed with psychotic depression, but the psychotic depression hadn't surfaced in over two years. Police records have revealed that he had become violent on occasion and had been charged with assault on two different accounts. After returning from his service in the army in Germany, he was known to refuse taking his medications, and that was when his psychotic depression really took hold and he would receive treatment from a VA hospital. He left the army as a result of a psychiatric discharge in 1973 to receive treatments for those issues as well as some drug use problems. At the time that they went missing, Gary was an assistant in his stepfather's gardening business, and he was considered by his physicians to be, quote, one of our sterling success cases, end quote. Jack Madruga had a low IQ, but hadn't been diagnosed as mentally disabled, and both him and Gary had served in the U.S. Army and had driver's licenses. He was a high school graduate, and in 1977, he had been laid off from his job as a busboy for Sunsweet Growers. It is thought that he suffered from undiagnosed learning disabilities. Ted Weyer had for a while been working as a janitor and as a snack bar cashier, but his family had urged him to quit as they were concerned his slowness was causing problems at work. He was considered to be a slow learner with some intellectual challenges, and he was known for being very friendly, someone who would always wave at strangers even if they didn't wave back to him, and he was known for calling Bill Sterling to read him funny newspaper articles or even funny names that he had found in the phone book. Jack Hewitt was known as a sort of loving shadow to Wire, and the two were regarded as best friends, and he looked after Hewitt in a protective manner, even dialing the phone for him when Hewitt needed to make a call. Hewitt had a recognizable side droop on his head, and he had been diagnosed with mild learning disabilities. Bill Sterling was known for being deeply religious, and he was quite close with the rest of the group. Him and Jack Madruga were best friends, 
and he, like the rest of his friends, lived with his parents at the time that he disappeared. On the night of Friday, February 24th, 1978, the men all got into Jack Madruga's car and drove the 50 miles from Yuba to Chico to attend a college basketball game. The game ended at around 10 p.m. that night, and they got back into Jack's car to start the drive back. On their way home to Yuba County, they decided to stop at a Bears Market to buy some snacks, which was only about three blocks away from the university. At this time, they had all piled into Jack Madruga's Mercury Montenegro and started heading south, and this gas station would be the last time any of them were seen alive. The day after this, they had a scheduled basketball game through Gateway. This was going to be part of a tournament where the winner would receive a paid week-long trip to Los Angeles, and the men were really excited about this and really wanted to win. This week-long tournament was being sponsored by the Special Olympics. They had all expressed being super excited for the game, and Ted Wire had even asked his mother to wash his new sneakers for the game, saying, quote, We've got a big game Saturday. Don't you let me oversleep. End quote. Their excitement for this game the next day was part of the reason their families became concerned so quickly, and the police were alerted that the five men were missing the very next morning. As mentioned, the men all lived with their parents due to their special needs, so they were immediately noticed to be missing, and their parents were convinced that something terrible had happened, considering it was widely outside of their normal behavior to not return home after a group trip. Four days later, on Tuesday, February 28th, a park ranger working in the Plumas National Forest reported an abandoned car that matched the description of Jack's, a turquoise and white 1969 Mercury Montenegro. The car was in the snow on an unpaved road, and even more strange, the car was found about two and a half hours in the opposite direction from the boys' route home, and was instead in the Plumas National Forest and they had driven up into the mountains to about 4,500 feet of elevation. According to what I was able to find in my research, only Bill Sterling had been to the area before on a fishing trip with his father, but he did not enjoy it and opted out of future trips to the area. Jack Madruga also reportedly hated the cold, and the group were only wearing light jackets on that night, and the only one of them who enjoyed the outdoors or camping was Gary, who would occasionally go on overnight trips, The rest of the group spent their time primarily indoors. These details all added to the confusion of both law enforcement and the families as to the location of the vehicle when it was found. The men were not in the car when it was found, the vehicle was unlocked, and the keys were also nowhere to be found. However, when police went to hotwire the car, it did start up without any trouble. This made it very perplexing as to why the men had seemingly abandoned the car, While the tires had clearly spun, the car did not appear stuck, and the gas tank was still a quarter full. This means that they were certainly not stranded by any means, and even if they thought that they were stuck, the five men absolutely would have had the strength to be able to push the car out of their drift. On top of this, there were four maps neatly folded in the glove compartment, including one of California, suggesting it is highly unlikely that they had somehow gotten lost. Additionally, the car's underside had sustained barely any damage, despite the roughness of the mountain road they were on, not to mention the intense darkness of the area at night. Police noted this as especially odd, and have been quoted saying, quote, The driver had either used astonishing care and precision, the investigators figured, or else he knew the road well enough to anticipate every rut, end quote. On the surface, it is easy to consider the men's intellectual disabilities to try and explain why they had driven up this mountain, and why they had left their fully functioning car, 
However, they had often made trips such as this and were well aware of travel procedures, so it is in no way an answer as simple as that. This sentiment leads into the theory that the families have put forth that follow play was somehow involved, which we will discuss further later on in this episode. Jack Madruga's mother has even been quoted saying, quote, they wouldn't have fled off into the woods like a bunch of quail. We know good and well that somebody made them do it. We can't visualize someone getting the upper hand on those five men, but we know it must have been, end quote. There was one witness who came forward after the details of the investigation had been released to the public, and his name was Joseph Scones. Scones shared with police that he had been on the same road as the men that night. He had taken a drive up there to check out the skiing conditions at a lodge that he owned. The most widely accepted version of Scones' story is that he somehow became stuck in the snow, and that as he was working to dislodge his car, he suffered a heart attack at about 5.30 p.m., this heart attack was later confirmed by doctors. Unable to do much of anything else, he returned to his car, turned on the heat and the lights, and stayed in place for a while. About six hours later, a car pulled up behind his, and he reported that six people got out of the car, saying that one of them appeared to be a woman holding a baby, and according to him, this was at around 11 or 12 at night. Scones went out and called for help, but the car's lights went out and the road went dark. A little while later, he reported seeing flashlight beams and once again called for help. According to certain accounts, the flashlight beams were spotted by Scones up to a few hours after he initially saw the car, and after a few tries of calling out for help, the lights went out. Scones ran out of gas and realized that his only choice was to walk, so he trudged the eight miles down the mountain, noticing Jack's car as he passed, which was empty. Note that Scones also told another version of this story, where at about 11.30, two sets of headlights pulled up behind him, a car and a pickup truck. He claimed these vehicles stopped about 20 feet from him and that the passengers all left together in one vehicle. He also said that he exited his car in order to call out for help, but no one responded to him. Based on these multiple conflicting accounts, it is hard to trust the words of Joseph Scones, and it has absolutely brought some suspicion to him in terms of some possible involvement in foul play. However, keep in mind that he had suffered a confirmed heart attack, so that could have been a traumatic enough event to have an impact on his perception and memory from the night. There was another witness, a female store owner, who did report seeing five men in a red pickup truck on Saturday and Sunday after the group went missing. The group came in the store to buy food, and one of them made a phone call from a phone booth. It is still unconfirmed who this group was, but it is interesting that this matches the story Scones gave where there was a pickup truck that the men got into on that night. She was considered a credible witness by police, but there wasn't anything to corroborate her story. There were a large number of tips that came in from people who thought they had seen the group, from places such as Ontario, Tampa, and Sacramento, but nothing was ever confirmed and these people were all thought to be mistaken. Investigators even consulted psychics at one point, also to no avail, and the search teams were having a very difficult time navigating the snow, so they were forced to pause the search left with no physical evidence. They searched the area for five days in total after the men went missing, until a severe blizzard moved into the area, which would have covered up any tracks they may have found, and it left about nine inches of snow on the upper mountain. They decided that they would resume the search when the weather was appropriate to do so. It was extremely unsafe for the search teams, and on occasion, some men even came close to being lost in the woods themselves. 
Months later, on June 4th, a small group of motorcyclists wandered into a deserted forest service trailer camp at the end of the road, reporting that they smelled something putrid and horrible. They also noticed a broken window on the service trailer as well. They immediately contacted forest services. This trailer was about 20 miles from where Jack's car had been found, and in the snow this would have been a grueling hike. However, somehow Ted Wyatt ended up in the trailer. His body was taken for an autopsy, where it was determined that he had been alive for somewhere between 8 and 13 weeks after the night they all went missing, meaning that he was still alive and in the trailer while the initial searches were happening. It is unclear if this trailer ever came up in the search perimeter, but if not, it is understandable that investigators would neglect the possibility that Ted had wandered 20 miles in the snow without any proper hiking equipment. Interestingly, there was a snowcat that had driven up the road to the trailer on February 23rd, which left a packed path that the men could have followed. If this was the case, they could have seen it as a sign that they were not alone in the area, and that perhaps if they followed it, they would find someone if they were in need of help. This means it is also possible that if the snowcat had left a trail for the men to follow to the trailer, they had not yet been to the trailer while the initial search was happening. During his time in the trailer, Ted had grown a beard and had lost over 100 pounds off of his frame, only 120 pounds when he passed away. He was found with eight bedsheets tightly secured around his body, so it is believed that there was someone else in the trailer with him at some point. His nickel ring, gold necklace, wallet with cash, and a gold watch were all found next to him. Oddly, none of the families recognized ever seeing him with this watch, nor any of the other group members. He was severely frostbitten, though there seemed to be plenty of materials that could have been used to start a fire around him, including playing cards, books, furniture, and heavy clothing. There was also a propane tank that could have been used to heat the space and cook food that was not touched. Yuba County Lieutenant Lance Ayers commented on this, saying, quote, All they had to do was turn that gas on, and they'd have had gas to the trailer and heat. End quote. Even more puzzling than the situation with the propane tank, there was a storage shed outside the cabin with an entire year's supply of rations. 36 of the meals were missing, but there were dozens and dozens that were untouched, and there were also freeze-dried meals that had not been used. Only a day after Ted was found, on June 5th, the remains of Jack Madruga and Bill Sterling were discovered on opposite sides of the road that led to the trailer, about 11 miles from the car and about 5 miles away from the trailer. Jack Madruga's remains had been disturbed by animals, and it was believed that his body was dragged at some point to a stream, likely also by wildlife. Bill was located in a wooded area by the road, however, his body was badly decomposed and consisted of only skeletal remains, which were spread over an area of about 50 feet. After these discoveries, law enforcement strongly encouraged the families to no longer participate in the searches in order to try and protect them from the scenes of further discoveries. Two days after Bill and Jack Madruga were found, the body of Jack Hewitt was discovered, heartbreakingly, by his own father. Mr. Hewitt was able to recognize the remains immediately because a pair of his son's ripple-soled get-there-shoes were found next to him, as well as a pair of Levi jeans. He was found on the same road as the rest of the men, but was slightly closer to the trailer, and he was found northeast of the trailer, while the other two men were found northwest of the trailer. 
His skull wasn't discovered until the next day, about 100 yards from the rest of his remains, and he was positively identified using those dental records. Only about a quarter mile away, forest service blankets and a two-cell flashlight were discovered on the same day. However, it was impossible to tell how long those items had been lying there. The remains of Gary Mathias have to this day never been found. However, the shoes he was wearing that night were found in the forest trailer with Ted. This led police to surmise that Gary had been with Ted at the trailer and had taken Ted's leather shoes in order to keep moving because Ted was found without any shoes on. The shoes that Ted was wearing that night were never found, so that contributes to this theory. Gary had also only been wearing tennis shoes the night that they went missing, and Ted had been wearing heavy boots. The search for Gary's body was called off on June 19th of 1978, with no evidence remaining of him but the shoes he left in the trailer. Given how long it had been, the weather conditions he would have had to endure, and the fact that he would have lost access to his medication, it was decided that the likelihood of finding him alive was almost zero. This was incredibly hard for his family to accept, and his mother was known for returning to the mountains several times to continue searching for him, but she was told that there was nowhere left to look. All of these men were determined to have died of hypothermia and exposure, despite the severe decomposition their bodies had sustained by the time the autopsies were performed, which would likely at least interrupt the process of determining a cause of death. A special agent from the California Department of Justice commented on the investigation, saying, quote, Bizarre, and no explanations, and a thousand leads. Every day, you've got a thousand leads, end quote. From the discovery of their bodies, it was abundantly clear to investigators that they were woefully unequipped to be out in that sort of weather, which made the question of why they had decided to leave the car that night even more puzzling. The darkest theory in this case is that Gary Mathias was the perpetrator of some sort of foul play. According to law enforcement, he was arrested in a town called Stockton at one point, where he was taken to a psychiatric facility. He broke out of the facility through a drainage pipe and walked and hitchhiked the 80 miles back home. Theorists have referenced this incident because it demonstrates a history of his long traveling distances on foot. He also had a history of violence, with his final recorded violent act being breaking into the home of a local couple, telling them they owed him rent money because the house was his. It was after this incident that he began consistently taking his medications and joined the Gateway Projects, showing a vast amount of improvement, but many find it difficult not to question this. His schizophrenic diagnosis did mean that he was not special needs. However, complications of schizophrenia can include depression, social isolation, anxiety disorders, and in rare cases, aggressive behavior, so many people have latched onto this final symptom. There are several notable details that start to quickly derail this theory, however. First of all, Gary would not have continued access to his medications if he went off the grid following the incident, and it is doubtful that he could stay out of trouble for long without it, so he would have shown up on record again likely at some point. He was also very attached to his family, and he always returned to his mother and stepfather's house, even after all of his long walkabouts. He had also been stable in his treatment for over two years, and there is no evidence that any of his previous behaviors would have occurred again. The only reason that he's considered a suspect is because his body was never found, but there could be many reasons for this, including the possibility that he went to find help for the others and got lost in the woods. 
It is natural to want answers in this case. However, turning to immediately blame someone who had done extensive work to manage their illness and improve their behavior, as well as someone who had an amicable relationship with his friends, is not a fair way to approach this case. There is no evidence of malicious intent and no contextual evidence, so while this is a popular theory, I would move to discount it as a desperate search for answers. One of the theories that I found to be the most interesting in this case was one that I found had been suggested regarding the witness on the night that they went missing, Joseph Scones. It has been alleged that Scones was a well-known local who had a dismal reputation, and some have speculated that he may have misdirected the five down the wrong trail to get help. This definitely isn't an impossibility, as the men likely would have trusted someone who was a local with some reliable knowledge of the land, and the only person who can confirm the events on the road that night occurred the way he said they did is Scones himself. Another theory mentions the missing keys, putting forth that they could have possibly left the car and lost the car keys in the darkness, which would explain Scones' story of the flashlights around the car. Perhaps they had been searching for the keys in the area and left the car if they decided that there wasn't another option. Many people, including myself, have questioned the fact that the car was in such good condition that it was clear the person who had been driving was either incredibly cautious or, more likely, that they knew the road extremely well. Though it was Jack Madruga's car, many have cited the possibility that the car was being driven by someone else. The families have contested this, however, saying that Jack would never have allowed someone else to drive his car. However, remember, Joseph Scones did report at one point seeing six people on the mountain road that night, so the question of foul play is certainly well worth mentioning here. He also mentioned seeing a truck on the mountain, so there is the possibility that whoever was in that truck was following or somehow threatening the men and they resorted to fleeing into the woods. The question of why Ted Wire didn't use the resources in the trailer to stay alive has been addressed by his family, who say that this is consistent with his behavior patterns. Due to his disabilities, his common sense was unfortunately diminished. He even questioned tasks that we deem to be commonplace, such as stopping at a stop sign. It is highly likely that he was worried about having trespassed on private property and didn't want to get in trouble for stealing any of the materials on the site. It is also unclear how the men found their way to the trailer, and there are lingering questions about if they were led there or not. There still isn't a clear answer for what happened at the trailer and when, but at least the question of why Ted didn't seek to use the propane tank and meals in the shed to sustain himself can be addressed with some level of certainty. The theory of foul play is certainly interesting, and it is possible that they were led into the woods under false pretenses, or that they left the car under coercion. Jack Madruga's mother, as mentioned, is still adamant that there was some force that made them go up onto the mountain that night. Unfortunately, the weather conditions likely would have erased most of the evidence that would support this if that is what really happened that night. Because of their mental disabilities, the men would have likely been more trusting than the average person so it is certainly worth considering that someone took advantage of them. There is no evidence suggesting foul play, but there isn't much evidence to support any of the theories, so in my opinion, it is just as plausible as anything else. It is also possible that this drive up to the mountains was a spontaneous decision, while there isn't any clear reason for it. It has been speculated that Gary Mathias suggested the trip in order to head towards Forbestown, an area between Chico and the Mountain Road, in order to visit some friends there. 
which does sound plausible as a motivator, however, it fails to explain every other circumstance in this case. It doesn't explain why they left the car, so every theory in this case is worth considering since it is so open-ended. It has also been considered that they believed the car had gotten stuck in the snow and wandered in the woods to look for help, but investigators have discounted this. The men walked uphill in the 5-10 to 10 foot snowdrifts, and if they were looking for help, they probably would have attempted to walk down the mountain instead. This case has and continues to baffle investigators, families, and any of those who come across it. There are too many unanswered questions to even take a theory and begin to explain away some of the details using that framework. Considering all of the facts of the case, there is no explanation that I have seen that ties up to loose ends, and each theory presents questions of its own that leave us with even more ambiguous results. Why and how did they end up on the mountain that night? Why did they abandon their vehicle? Was there some sort of foul play involved? Likely, there will never be an answer in this case, and whether or not Gary's body is ever found, I don't believe that the answers lie with him. I also don't believe that the men's disabilities should be considered too heavily when surmising the details here. They were all high-functioning, and together their collective reasoning was likely quite rational. So overall, I have no answers to offer here, only more questions, but it is certainly fascinating to mull over all of the different theories as to what really happened. Thank you for listening to this week's episode of the Crime Bistro Podcast, and if you're interested in learning more about this case, all of the source materials and show notes are listed at crimebistro.com. Also be sure to follow the podcast on Instagram for some behind-the-scenes looks at Crime Bistro Podcast, and visit the podcast on YouTube to leave a comment if you have a theory of your own to share. All that being said, that's going to bring this story to a close, so as always, until next time.